but I have also really learned to be present in the moment. I've also learned very much to think in buckets of what I can control, what I can't control, what I'm choosing not to control. I've learned the hard way that spending a lot of energy trying to change things I can't control takes a lot of energy. And if you actually take that energy and focus it on things that you can control, like the results are completely different. It's a bit cliche to say that entrepreneurs have control issues. I mean, our drive for control over our time, our work, our creative output, it's one of the reasons many of us ended up starting our businesses in the first place. Our control issues can have positive side effects. Needing to be in control can inspire you into resourcefulness. It can motivate you to learn new skills. It can help you find a sense of independence. But control issues ultimately harm us and our companies. Our control issues can hurt the people we work with and they can stifle our creativity. Trying to get or maintain control can hold our imaginations and well-being hostage. Adrian Marie Brown writes in Emergent Strategy, quote, Many of us respond to change with fear or see it as a crisis. Some of us anticipate change with an almost titillating sense of stress. We spend precious time thinking about what has changed that we didn't choose or can't control and or thinking ahead to future stress. Well, yeah, that feels pretty familiar. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that takes you behind the scenes to explore how small business owners are building stronger businesses. This week, we're continuing our series on leading yourself with Alethea Fitzpatrick, the co-founder of Co-Creating Inclusion, a diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting practice. Alethea told me that her go-to practice for navigating the twists and turns of this year has been focusing on what she can control and letting go of what she can't. And as you might guess, Alethea's consultancy has experienced massive growth this year, which has been its own challenge, and all while she has had to deal with pandemic life with two kids in New York City. I've watched Alethea navigate big emotions, uncertain outcomes, and limited capacity, and her openness and grace in the midst of oppression and violence has been astounding. Now, let's find out what works for Alethea Fitzpatrick. Alethea Fitzpatrick, welcome back to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Tara. I'm so glad to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So we were just chatting. You were here a little over a year ago on the podcast, and we were kind of talking about embracing uncertainty, which is, you know, perfect (laughs) for this year. Um, But we were uh, talking about embracing uncertainty and change as a method for growth. And I think that that, again, is going to be a significant theme of this conversation, but yeah. it's going to be a great follow-up from <laughs> last year. Little did we know, huh? <laughs> Little did we know. Oh, my God. Know. Yes. So speaking of which, take us back to the beginning of 2020. What were your plans and goals for the year when it came to co-creating inclusion? So actually, the funny thing is, um, my word for the year was transformation. And I just have been laughing the whole year about that because, again, like, little did I know and careful what you wish for. And so, you know, but the intention in the beginning, what that says is the intention in the beginning really was um, for transformation. I had just launched co-creating inclusion um, last September instead of, you know, as as a container bigger than myself, I've been doing DEI work for a little while, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion work sort of under my own name, but I never really wanted to have a business that was just Alethea Chang Fitzpatrick 
consulting. Um, it was just kind of a placeholder. So um, I launched co-creating inclusion. And so it was really a year where I wanted to really step into that work, that container. And we were on a trajectory of growth. It's hard to know um, which opportunities would have been realized, but we had a really healthy pipeline of, we had some current clients and a really healthy pipeline of potential clients um, right when the pandemic hit. So that was, you know, so we were looking really for just building the practice, building our clients, building the revenue, building the impact, all of those things. Yeah, all those foundational things that you do. I, I love how you put it as, as you're stepping into that bigger container that you were creating. Um, so you mentioned the pandemic, living in Brooklyn, you really started to experience the impact of COVID very early. You were certainly one of the first people I was talking to regularly who was thinking about it kind of top of mind. Uh, so what started to change for you at that time? So... Um... My husband actually was talking about it really early on, way before anyone else was, and was talking about the city shutting down and all of these kinds of things that just seemed completely unfathomable at that time. And then it did hit very, very quickly here where um, kind of within a week, it was just like zero to 60 of clients, you know, having cases in their building and closing down and schools closing and just like it was it happened it happened very very fast like i i always think about how i had a hair appointment scheduled for march 14th and i ended up canceling it because it just didn't feel like between the time when i booked it and the time when i would have been going on the subway into the city i was like no it's not worth it so i got sort of stuck with long hair <laughs> that i still <laughs> that i still have as a result of that. And so what happened very, so that pipeline that I just talked about of projects, mm -hmm. especially um, with companies, for-profit companies, um, pretty much dried up uh, very, very quickly. Like meetings that we had scheduled, like people were emailing saying, we just closed our office. Like, let's, let's put, a, let's put a hold on talking about DEI work. Um, a lot of those companies I know ended up, you know, looking at, you know, layoffs and furloughs and all of these kinds of things. So I think it, interestingly, on the for-profit side, there was a very rapid shift. Um, but in the meantime, we had existing nonprofit clients that we were in the process of discussing new scope of work. And they were already committed and I mean, they weren't literally necessarily committed in terms of a contract, but they were already um, sort of committed as a company to doing the DEI work and were able, and they have maintained budgets. So nonprofits, their budgets are sort of are more fixed for the year. And then each year they, mm -hmm. they get, you know, their budgets get redesigned. There's not so much of a sudden impact. And so um, we actually, one client, we literally had the strategic planning meeting in their office, I think at the end of February. And we were already talking then about like, we probably shouldn't hug each other. We probably shouldn't shake hands. Um, and then the, so then I issued the strategic plan on March 17th, the first day that my kids were home and um, pretty much had to write a whole new section of the report at the beginning of like, 
well, since we talked three weeks ago, we are now in a global pandemic. And I think like, you know, the sports have been like really big things that already happened, like sports have been canceled and flights have been stopped and all of these kinds of things. And um, so we did have to really ask our questions, ask ourselves questions early on about, you know, what does DEI work in a pandemic look like? And, you know, what does that mean, right? You know, what does that mean right now? And while we were seeing a lot of companies putting their DEI efforts on hold, we sort of had a sense from very early on that no, actually like this was, DEI was gonna be even more important than ever. And we saw that very quickly as the effects of the pandemic basically exacerbated the inequities that already exist, you know, cracks became, a friend of mine recently said, cracks became gaping holes, like things that were were broken before, but were sort of patched together with duct tape, uh, just kind of fell apart. And I think that in a crisis, um, people and organizations are even more likely to default to all patterns of behaviors in the ways that we're socialized. And so um, that is unfortunately what we've seen, but we, um, we, we did have to sort of reground ourselves in how we were talking about and thinking about and doing our work in the immediate sort of t- time after um, after the pandemic hit. Yeah. I want to rewind just a little bit uh, to you talking about the pi- your pipeline sort of starting to crumble or or disappearing really overnight in terms of at least the for-profit companies that were that were there and that were hot leads for you. Um, I think any time the business starts disappearing like that, it can bring up a lot of frantic energy. It can bring up a lot of doomsday scenarios. I'm curious if those, if that kind of thinking happened for you and whether it did or not, like how you were talking yourself through that time when things were starting to look bad. You know, I think it's funny because it feels like kind of a blur. Um, I almost Mm -hmm. feel like I, um, I could go back and look at the blog posts that I was writing at that time. Cause I do remember I wrote quite a few blog posts. So it was a very, it was a very um, fertile time in terms of just like, there was so much to process and unpack and sort of analyze and think about. Um, I think I was also really grappling with, you know, my two, I have, I have two sons uh, who are eight and 11 and, now and and my husband and now we were all home and they didn't it, all of their school was asynchronous and so i think in the in the sort of um crisis or the reactive nature of just trying to figure all that all of that out so i didn't really have time to panic okay about the business because i was sort of panicking about do we have gross, how are we going to get groceries? What are we going to do with the kids at home? Um, I guess it was sort of like the Maslow's hierarchy. <laughs> in terms of the hierarchy of needs, it was like, there were just more like, you know, do we have enough toilet paper? Like all of those things that we were all thinking about at that time, how do we get masks? Like there was too much, I think just in the day to day of adjusting to quarantine that, wasn't really 
any time to panic about the business. And I was also very fortunate that um, one of our clients basically signed a new scope of work um, out of the strategic plan. Um, that was a um, w- was enough revenue to sort of not have to panic further about yeah. sort of everything completely disappearing. So it wasn't, um, it was really the potential projects that disappeared and current clients kept working with us. There were actually two clients, nonprofit clients that we were literally in the process of like proposals and finalizing scope that both ended up going ahead. And so that, um, I think that meant that we, I felt very, I felt very lucky um, mm-hmm. that we had that, but it meant that um, I wasn't freaking out about applying for loan, you know, loans or any of any of that kind of thing. Yeah, well, and I think that leads to another challenge with leading yourself, which I think a lot of people ran into, which is when you are panicked about the the toilet paper and the masks and the homeschooling. How do you make space for even the business that you? have. I mean, you you still had the work that you needed. You had the work that you wanted. And also you had all this other work to do. How were you balancing those things at that time? So I think the other thing is that um, I am pretty good in a crisis. Mm-hmm. I am energized by thinking on my feet and um, sort of staying calm and being able to see the steps um, ahead of what needs to happen. And so, yeah, I, it, it was, it was bad. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't bad. Yeah, It was bad. And for me, I think it was more sort of stressful and exhausting rather than a panic, mm-hmm. if that makes, if that makes sense. And I think that, I have a lot a lot of tools that I've developed over the years. I think particularly mindfulness and being present. So I'm a very much a strategic thinker, so I'm always thinking big picture, so I'm always thinking future thinking in that respect. But I have also really learned to um, be present, be present in the moment. I've also learned very much to um, sort of like think in buckets of what I can control, what I can't control, what I'm choosing not to control. And, you know, I've learned um, the hard way that spending a lot of energy trying to change things I can't control is, um, takes a lot of energy, (laughs) takes a lot of energy. And if you actually take that energy and focus it on things that you can control, like the results are completely different much better, much better results. And so, um, a lot of, um, that kind of, um, self-knowledge and development that I've done over the years, I think, um, really has helped me this past year, which is not to say that there are not moments even quite recently when I'm like breaking down and crying hysterically in front of my kids, right? That, that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, I think for me, it's more stress and exhaustion rather than panic. And that also reflects a certain level of privilege that mm-hmm. I have certain, that I do have safety nets and supports that mean that 
I'm not worrying about where the next meal is coming from or the roof over our head. We've been very lucky to be able to maintain financial stability, job security, all of those things, health security, you know, all of these different things that make it, um, that mean that I don't have to get um, as close to panic as I, as I might in other situations. So that's, that's definitely, that's definitely a factor. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, obviously by, by virtue of the work that you do, but also all of the personal work that you've done your whole life, you have a really great awareness of that, where I think that a lot of people maybe who uh, like me, are less aware often of that privilege, right? And it's very easy to jump to panic instead of gratitude um, and recognize the, uh, not recognize the stress and exhaustion as as part of that privilege versus the panic. I, I love how you put that. I really do. Yeah. And I think certain tools like, you know, I, it's, like catastrophe, you know. So I've done some DBT work. So there's there are ideas around so, so sort of different thought patterns that you can identify, such as catastrophizing. I definitely mm-hmm. have in the past had more of a tendency to catastrophize, which is a sort of fancy way of saying panicking, I guess. But right, it's like sort of like extending, you know, extrapolating out to like the worst is going to happen. And so I have done work that helps me recognize when I might be heading in that direction and I can shift gears around that and things like black and white thinking. Um, those are two that particularly jump, uh, jump to mind, come to mind. And yes, gratitude. Like I've done, I've also done, you know, work around, um, a practice of gratitude, being present, all of those things that help to sort of create, create resilience. So yes. Yeah, I've been through it. <laughs> I've been able to learn from a few other crises that I've been through. I've never been through a pandemic, um, but I've definitely been through other things that I think have helped prepare me a little bit. I mean, n- not at all completely, but at least gave me a little bit of foundation to build from. Yeah. Catastrophizing is um, very familiar to me. I'm like the first person, uh, you know, I get a bad email and I'll boohoo to Sean about it. And he's like, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, you don't understand. We're going to lose the house. And <laughs> yes. We're going to be living out of the car. Yes. Yes. He's like, it's, it's an email. I know. <laughs> yes. No, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a thing. It's a totally. thing. And Yes. No matter how yeah. much privilege or how far you are from that, that can still happen for sh- those kinds of thoughts, for sure. Yes. Yeah. You'll hear how Alethea led herself and her team through the emotional upheaval around the Black Lives Matter uprising in June. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. 2020 has taught us the value of connecting with people who share our values, interests, or goals, even from afar. We're all craving a sense of community and belonging. And since you're listening to What Works, I know there's something that you're passionate about that you can bring people together around. Maybe it's a goal of retiring at 45, or it's a minimalist lifestyle, or it's creating more accessible neighborhoods. No matter what fuels you and your drive to bring people together, Mighty Networks can help. 
When you start a Mighty Network, you're creating a private, dedicated home for the people who care about what you care about to gather, trade notes, and lift each other up. Your Mighty Network can be a place where people learn, grow, and make new friends. Now, don't worry. You don't need to be a developer or a designer or even an experienced community builder to make your Mighty Network work. Your new Mighty Network will guide you through the whole process and set you up for success. To get started free of charge, go to MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. What Works is also brought to you by the What Works Network. I've often been asked how it is that I can change and pivot as an entrepreneur without losing the thread. How it is that I've gone from a blogger to a business coach, to a trainer, to a community builder, to a producer over the years. And this has always been kind of a tricky question for me because in my mind, the real question is, how could I not change and pivot? Life and business is a process of change. There is no magical destination called the land of got it figured out. There is only the continual process of learning, growth, and adaptation. Creating is change. Being in service is change. Connecting with others is change. Now, I wanted to share this with you today because as we approach the end of this year, I know our thoughts naturally go to the distance between where we are and where we hoped to be. We wonder when things will ever start to feel settled, complete, fixed. And my mind drifts in this direction too. But how would things be different if we accepted, even embraced change, learning, and adaptation as features instead of bugs? What if we said, of course I'm in a different place than I thought I'd be at the end of the year. Look at how much I've learned. What resources and relationships would you need to support yourself in that kind of reality? Because that's the real reality. My answer has always been and continues to be that the resources I need to support myself are relationships. It's the people I practice with that allow me to change, adapt, and grow. It's also the practice itself. It's the tools I use, the systems I've created, and the spaciousness I've allowed myself to evolve. I don't always get it right, but I always come back to the people and the practice. My sincere wish for you as we start to close out 2020 is that you find a reconnect with your own people and practice so that you have what you need to head into a brave new year. If you haven't yet found your people in practice, I invite you into our circle and our practice here at the What Works Network. You'll get access to a community of experienced small business owners, plus the new Stronger Business Playbook and our January session of the Commitment Blueprint, plus all of our monthly events events, conversations, and support. A one-year membership at the WhatWorks Network is $999 or 12 payments of $84. To join us, go to explorewhatworks.com slash network. All right, let's fast forward, uh, not very far because 2020, um, but things changed for you and your business again in a really big way uh, at the end of May with the murder of George Floyd and the unprecedented Black Lives Matter protests. What happened in your business in in June? (laughs) So what happened in my business in June was actually already in motion to take place, but but 
we didn't know that it was going to be overlaid with, you know, mm-hmm. this conversation and actions and unfolding across the country. So I actually, um, a past client, interestingly, um, had a, a team that was going to take an in-person workshop um, that got canceled with the pandemic. And so she reached out to me and was like, hey, like, maybe, like, could you do something for us online? <laughs> and I was like, yes, absolutely, I could do something online. And it was so funny to me that an in-person training would be canceled instead of just moving it online. But that, that's like a whole other discussion. But right. <laughs> um, <laughs> for us, for those of us that have been online for a while, it's like, why would you do that? But um, but it was, you know, it was definitely a gain for me and that I got to um, work with a small DEI group within an organization. And we did a series of four three-hour workshops. The first one of which, I forget the exact date, was basically like the Friday before George Floyd was murdered. And the second one was, you know, a week and a half later. And the first one was more of a general introduction to DEI. And the second one was where we were going to talk about race. So it was the most eerie of timing um, and also really quite powerful to facilitate that conversation um, with this with this group of people within an organization. Um, and so June was just, so, so that was, that was 12 hours of workshop facilitation. And then there was another client, one of the clients I talked about earlier, I think we did two workshops also within sort of four or five weeks of it. So it was, it were we were already lined up to do, um, workshop facilitation around DEI in June and so then we were doing it within the context of um, of the protests of the murder of George Floyd and all of the other things that were going on at that time, Breonna Taylor, um, even Chris Cooper, you know, the, the murder in Central Park. And it wasn't, I mean, it was really intense. Um, you know, at the same time, we had helicopters circling overhead in my neighborhood for weeks. And footage of protests and ongoing police brutality right in my neighborhood but we were quarantined pretty hot so Mm -hmm. right in my neighborhood but that I hadn't actually been in for the last three months um so usually my kids and I are pretty active and they go to school in downtown Brooklyn and we're walking around the neighborhoods and um we have some vulnerability in our family which meant that we quarantined pretty hard and I actually for a while in the spring really did not feel comfortable going more than a block or two from my house. So it was just a weird thing of like an unfolding, like, you know, at the, at my target, at my, at the street corner that we usually go, you know, walk every week. Um, but also not having been there for three months and seeing it all like on social media, um, as we didn't, we didn't go out, um, because of that vulnerability. So it was just very, um, very, very intense. Um, my team is almost all women of color. My facilitation team is all women of color and um, and mostly black women. Um, I'm a British-born Chinese American. Um, and so we were processing our own emotions while holding space and facilitating for others. And um, it was a lot. It was a lot. Um, I remember getting to the end of that 
18 hours of workshop facilitation right on the right on the tail of that and um I'm really it was a, I'm really glad like I, I loved both of those projects and both of those clients that we were working on um and it was also just a, a real um it took a lot of <laughs> stamina it's like running a not even a marathon I'm not even sure like a, but it was just you're you're the runner more than I am. <laughs> but it was, so I'm not sure what the correlation is. It's like a 10k or I don't know, but it was just it was it was very intense. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to think about what distance uh this year represents. I think you're right. It's not really a marathon because we've been running faster than you would run in a marathon. <laughs> uh <laughs> Okay, uh, but enough, enough, enough jokes. Let's talk about the intensity of it. Because I know, like, because I've known you, I've worked with you all year, I know that you feel these things very deeply that you are that the emotional impact of these things is big for you. And you said like, you and your team are having to process this while you're holding space for others. And that is an incredible amount of work. What were you doing to tend to yourself, to nurture yourself, to resource yourself during that time so that you had the ability to show up in that way, both for yourself and for others? So probably not enough. Okay. <laughs> say like I feel like I have aged 10 years in the last year and I can feel it like I can feel it in my body. Like I can feel the stress manifesting in my body in ways that are kind of um concerning, let's mm-hmm. say. Um cuz I was also dealing with the trauma of my kids having lost their the life they were used to also right and and now being home and um you know at that time playgrounds weren't open like they you know there was just a lot it, there was just a lot going on and this you know there still is i think that um for me morning pages has been a practice that I have been engaged in for, I don't even remember now, but I think this might be my third year of doing mm. it really consistently. And it doesn't work for everyone, but for me, that is my way of waking up and centering on my own voice before I let all the other voices in. So theoretically, and I'm not always good about this, but theoretically, I'm not picking up my phone. I'm not looking at social media. I'm not checking email. I'm not doing anything that lets in other voices until I've given myself 20 to 30 minutes to just like listen to like write and that physical experience of putting pen to paper rather than typing and just kind of seeing what's coming out, like what's going on in my brain, like what's going on in my brain, what's on my mind. And um, sometimes it just the most unexpected things come up or surface through that process. And I think that that has been, I found that when sometimes I have let it go and use that. So I wake up really early. So with two kids, Mm -hmm. the only time I, with two kids in quarantine, the only chance I have for quiet time is like 4 a.m. until 6.30 or 7 a.m. And so it can be tempting when busy with work to just get up and start working in that time. Mm -hmm. 
but I have found that when I have done that, it only takes three or four days for my sort of, uh, for me to kind of lose myself and and kind of just lose the grounding and centering that I found that I need to be able to have to do this work. And so I tried that a few times. I'm pretty sure probably June with all of these different workshops and reports and things, that was probably some of the times when I was like, ah, I don't like, I should, you know, ah, I don't need to do that. And now no matter what kind of deadlines or pressures I'm under, I will occasionally skip it for one day, but I try not to go more than one day. So I can sort of, I can sort of make it for a day if I skip it for a day. But I definitely could feel the difference after two or three days if I didn't do that of just, it's hard to really describe, but I would just, I would just feel myself getting untethered Mm -hmm. um, in a sort of, um, untethered isn't quite the right word, but I would just kind of lose the thread a little bit or lose the thread of my own voice. I'm very empathetic and I definitely pick up other people's emotions and um, feel, take on other people's emotions, which I think is both a blessing and a curse. (laughs) So it's part of the skill that I, it's part of what helps me do the work that I do. It's a, it's a, I think it is a very strong sort of skill that Mm -hmm. I bring to the work that I do. And I've also had to be really intentional about kind of discerning like, okay, what are my feelings and what are other people's feelings? And how, like, I actually have a very specific meditation I do now. This is going to sound very woo and sort of way more woo than I really am as a person. But I have a meditation that really is about kind of letting go of everyone else's feelings and only holding on to my feelings so, so so that I am not carrying around other people's getting you know carrying around and, and getting bogged down in other people's emotions because really empathy is understanding how other people feel it doesn't mean that you're actually supposed to feel their feelings mm-hmm. for them that is not actually a very healthy thing to be doing and so i've also learned through experience to notice when i am actually starting to feel other people's feelings and that I have tools that I can reach for to kind of set up boundaries so that I am feeling my feelings. Cause right. Another thing we could do is to not feel our own feelings. Yeah. So to make sure that I am feeling my feelings and not other people's feelings and centering back in my own voice. And, you know, through the work that I do, I know, right. As a woman, as an Asian woman, um, my voice is not going to automatically be centered and, other voices are going to be trying to tell me how I, who I am, what I should do, what I should think, all of those kinds of things. So I've had to, so I've learned to um, create boundaries around that so that I can hear and honor my own voice and in hearing and honoring my own voice, I can then hear and honor other people's voices. Hmm. That's beautiful. I really like how you said that the morning pages help you listen to yourself before you listen to other voices. That feels so valuable to me. And I've had morning pages on the brain since January 1. I thought this is going to be the year I do it. Have I done it once? No. Um, But the way you just described it is like, oh my gosh, Terry, you really, you need to get on that. And I also really, really love the question of the questions of what are my feelings and what are other people's feelings? Like that 
feels like such those feel like such um valuable questions for discernment um mm. and it's also just real quick it's funny that you mentioned having a specific meditation around that too because i interviewed emily thompson uh, her episode will be out uh, has been out now for a couple of weeks by the time people are hearing this one and um she also referenced a meditation that she does almost daily of cutting away the attachments that she has to things mm. that are not her yes. um, and so it sounds really similar <laughs> and so i love when things like that happen where like Oh, well, if it's working for these two people, then clearly that's something that maybe I should try. <laughs> yes, no, I, it has been a big lesson that has taken me a good part of my life to learn, like yeah. the, the unhealthy attachments that we form, really the codependency that we mm -hmm. can have with other people, other things, trying to control things that we can't control. And so um, for me, acceptance is a really big thing but we always and we talk about this with our clients as well in our DEI work that acceptance doesn't mean that you like it at least the way I think of acceptance um acceptance means that I accept that it is and that there's nothing that, that I can't change it um that I don't have control over it and that doesn't mean giving up that doesn't mean not having influence but it really means kind of staying in my lane because i think it's when we try to control things that we actually can't control is actually when we cause harm it's when that's the sort of definition of oppression in a way yeah. is is putting ourselves on to other people and um and so i try i've learned to be really careful about that i love it i love it let's shift gears a little bit um mm -hmm. i want to talk about the operational changes that you've made in your business um, be, by virtue of the growth that you've experienced, the shift in how you do the work that you do, the people that you've brought on board with you. Can you describe some of those um, big operational changes, adjustments that you've had to make or that you've wanted to make in the last uh, six months or so? Um, because again, hashtag 2020. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the part after the really intense month in June um, was then um, what a white friend of mine actually termed the work wave. And I was like, that is such a great, I've, I've been using it. I've been using that term ever since. And so, um, you know, with the murder of George Floyd, with the protests, um, there was this woke wave of statements around Black Lives Matter and sort of more folks awakening to um, the realities of, you know, white supremacy and systemic racism. And, um, and so we were definitely, we were hit by that wave. I call it also the broke woke wave because at the same time, a lot of these come right because of the pandemic. I mean, it's a very unique overlay of these two different events or two different things happening. Um, so a lot of companies are at the same time laying people off, furloughs, budget cuts. Um, but they have made these statements. I remember um, the company that I buy pillowcases and sheets from coming out with their Black Lives Matter statement. And I was, I was like, wow. I mean, it was just a very strange time of both um, like, about time like we you know we desperately need a wave of commitment and 
you know, um, but at the same time, you know, the work wave brings with it a wave of white fragility is the way I've sort of thought about it as well as, as white folks, especially have been kind of waking up to some of the realities of what black indigenous and other people of color have always experienced for centuries. Um, they're also having all of those defensive and questioning and, you know, um, all, all, Everything that is described in Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility, happen, you know, happening alongside this. Um, and so we have basically pretty, because I mean, it's, I, I, we've been waiting, it has fluctuated, but we now have a steady stream of inquiries coming in and in a completely unprecedented way. And, you know, it's hard to know, like, would some of that have happened anyway as co-creating inclusion grew? Um, I would like to think yes, but it was such a dramatic increase right after George Floyd that I would have to say probably not to this extent. And it was to the point where, it, it, and it still is more work than we can handle. And so one, of, so in terms of the operational adjustments, um, and then all of this is happening um, sort of over the summer as school is on break and we're kind of recouping and trying to figure out what's happening next. And we're facing the reality of no school is not going to start up in the fall. Like we all kind of thought on March 16th or whatever the date was. And so I was facing the reality of two parents working full time with two kids home. Like the math doesn't add up and all this work is coming in and how how do we make this work? And there was, it got to a moment that I had actually been planning for and hoping for a while with one of my independent contractors who was at the same time working another full-time job of, you know, at what point would we be able to have her transition, leave her full-time job and join co-creating inclusion full-time? And the funny thing is, I think earlier in the spring or summer, we had or maybe even before the pandemic, I forget now exactly, but we had sort of said like, maybe um, maybe in the fall, this could happen. And I think I had, and then I had sort of forgotten about that. And then suddenly in early August, as we were closing on some pro new projects, I was like, wait a minute, like, I think we have the volume of work now to be able to do that. And it, I think I even remember asking you, like, how do I try and figure out yeah. how to make this happen? I'm pretty sure it was pre-pandemic, actually. So, yeah, I was trying to figure out how do I sort of um, manufacture, not manufacture, but how do I, I need a jump in revenue to bring someone on full time. And how does that happen? <laughs> and I don't know that I, like, it just kind of happened. It just suddenly was like, because um, what happens is a lot of nonprofits over the summer, a lot of companies and most of our work has continued to be nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them in the summer were looking for projects to start up in the fall. And so it was that we were, in fact, able to close on a few projects and some of it was existing clients and extended scope of work. But things that we lined up in July to start in September, all of a sudden I was like doing the numbers on the back of an envelope almost like, oh, wait, like this could actually, this is adding up, this could happen. And my, what I now realized was a fantasy. <laughs> my fantasy was that I could actually cut, that would be how I could cut back my hours, but still grow the business was by bringing on Malika as a full-time 
employee that would increase the capacity. And then Pierre is my other team member um, who was also able to increase her hours. I say it was a fantasy because I, because I had been working with both of them for a year already, it did not feel like they would be new team members. But it's very different being an independent contractor working on some projects here and there to becoming sort of more like a full-time team member. And, you know, as a as a mostly team member of one prior to that, I didn't have the systems in place to for a team to just plug into, even though I thought I had some pretty good systems. <laughs> they, um, I think the what I've mm-hmm. realized is there's a lot of stuff that I do without thinking about it that now I have to stop and think about and explain so that someone else know so that my team um, who would have, you know, could do it, but would do it differently would, you know, so that we would all be co-creating a methodology, a methodology and approach Mm -hmm. rather than having each of us doing it our own separate ways. And an example of where I found there was a huge gap. So I write these reports and it has been me writing them up until now. Um, And then narrative reports that basically sort of become the institutional memory. So it sort of describes the process that we've gone through, all of the aha moments and takeaways and findings and then recommendations and next steps. And these reports, it's funny because they're quite long, (laughs) but people actually read them like a report sounds so boring. Like I have to come up, I think I have to figure out a it doesn't sound very interesting, but like we've had clients come to meetings and every team member has like a dog-eared copy of the report and like post-its on every page and highlights and underlinings. Like people really oh, wow. read them in a way that um, has been quite gratifying. And it's because they're really, it's storytelling, really. It's like you're reading the story, the narrative of the work that we've gone through. And one of the reasons it's so important, I think, is because the work takes a long time and it can feel like there's so little progress that you kind of need a report to remind you, like, remember where you were at the beginning and remember all of these different things that we did and all of the things that we learned and these different takeaways. And so I just write these reports. <laughs> and because I had a few, I gave my team members, I was like, here's a few examples, go forth and write the report. And they've been really stuck on it. Um, or they found it really hard. Mm. And what I was realizing, we actually had a conversation earlier today. We we did like a two-hour team meeting where I was, I basically deconstructed how I write reports and the process that I go through. And and I got to totally geek out. We just got to totally geek out about it. It was honestly like the most fun I've had in a few weeks was talking to my team about like how I write reports and them asking questions and um you know, when we do things and we just kind of do them intuitively, I realized that like it was so helpful and interesting for me to have to be forced to think about what is the process I go through to write a report? Because usually I just sit down and I don't really know what I do. I just write them. But when I actually had to deconstruct it and explain it to my team, it was actually super interesting for them. And I think for them, but certainly for me, it was super interesting to kind of retrace my steps and be like, okay, so first I did this and then I went through and I was looking for these kinds of things. And like, and these are the things I was looking for and the questions I was asking myself. And, and actually like there's a whole process, but I had never had to articulate it before. So I was telling them, it's like, it's not like I had this all articulated and I was just holding it back. I was just keeping it from you. It's like, I literally had never had to explain to someone 
how I did it. And just because they had the end result, right? Like if someone gives you a cake, like just because you have the cake doesn't mean you know how to make it, right? So I may had made that mistake of, well, they have the report. So like they can just write the version of it for, you know, for this project. Like what's the problem? But I see now that it, there's a lot more that goes into creating something. And um, so that was actually just a super fun um, team meeting that we had earlier today, um, kind of piecing together how um, how we do things and well, how I do things, but even the things that um, I have worked on with them that we've just sort of done quickly and not had to be, not had to stop and think about how we do. Um, it's just been a really, really rewarding process to deconstruct our own methodology in order to understand it better, but also to bring other people in and also for it to evolve. So I was very clear when I met with them, like, this is how I do reports. This doesn't mean that's how we should do reports or how you have to do reports, but like, let's start off looking at, Mm -hmm. as a starting point, looking at how I've been doing them and then you can adjust the process, right? This is how my brain works. And you can, you know, take the pieces that are helpful and also add your own pieces and maybe you're going to end up with a different kind of a process, but making it more explicit. Um, And so we've had to do this with every aspect of the work that we do. And I really love that we get to, like for me, it's just a really beautiful combination of sort of theory and practice rolled in together. Like we get to, we get to, reflect and iterate and immediately sort of put it into practice. And it's like learning through putting into practice. And I also get a lot of energy. I find it so interesting that the more different clients we have, the more synergy there is between like seeing different patterns in different organizations. So it's just been a very, it's been a very exciting time as well to really just go deeper and deeper into into the work and and into the relationships with our clients and really um, getting to unpack and go through with them a process of really kind of confronting the truth about systems of oppression and how they play out in our organizations and the joy that comes from that. I mean, it's very painful. It's very painful, but it's also there's a joy in actually being able to say the things that haven't been spoken and the relief that that creates for the most impacted and how that then allows an organization to move forward in deeper alignment with their mission. So it's very difficult and painful work, but also very joyful and um, rewarding. In fact, we were talking to a potential client earlier today and we were laughing so much that I felt like I had to sort of explain <laughs> this. Like we're not laughing because we think it like we take like this is very serious, but but we also find a lot of joy in in the unraveling of of oppression and and sort of like if you don't laugh, you're just gonna cry. So um yeah, does that give you some of a does that sort of answer there are totally. there are more things, but those are a few that there are, there are many more things, but those are some of the some examples of yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I, I love the example of you unpacking how you write the reports because 
the such a big challenge uh, in getting through the operational adjustments around growth are is making space for other people doing work you've always done and i think we can get a lot, we can feel a lot of resistance to that initially but what i have found to be true is exactly what you articulated is as soon as I actually get into it, it's like the most fun thing ever (laughs) to explain to someone, this is why I do the things that I do in the way that I do them. Yes, it is. It's a funny thing. In fact, what I did was I opened one of the most recent reports that I wrote, um, which was like, I, I literally in the Google Doc looked at the history and it's like, Okay, so here's when I woke up at 4.30 and, you know, and I went through the history of the document and like retraced my step of how I built it and it's like, okay, so by, you know, and I started with this template and I copied over the table of contents from another report. And then like, okay, so like by 5.30 in the morning, I was writing down all of the different themes and then like, okay, so by 6.30, then I was like filling in what some of the themes are. Oh, and I also, look, I started a running list of things and it was just really, it was like a very, um, I won't speak for my team who maybe were just totally rolling their eyes, but I was just like, (laughs) wow, this is so, I've never gone back through to see like, how did I, I'm usually just writing it. Like I, I had to sort of literally go back through the, through the Google doc history and look at some of the versions to be like, oh yeah. So like, this is how, this is how I do it. And I do think my, my team seemed to find it very helpful as well. Cause they've been sort of struggling with trying to write this report, um, that their reports. And I think we also realized that, we are very collaborative in how we develop workshop decks. But then mm-hmm. I've been doing these reports completely by myself. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. like, co- like, you know, we're, co- we're called co-creating inclusion. But a part of our, what we've realized is, um, right, I think we're, we're not really socialized to be co-creative <laughs> in, ge- in general. And so we ourselves have had to have been digging through the layers and realizing even the ways that we can be more co-creative and that has been fascinating and yeah literally just this morning i was like oh like we have a very co-creative process for workshop decks but not at all for reports and we really should be like all going through kind of a similar process that we do with workshop decks of brainstorming and figuring out what the themes are and then yes someone will go away and do a lot of the actual work but and i and i think that would make it a lot easier actually like there's mm-hmm. nothing more deadly than having to write a report by yourself at four in the morning also so um so we all kind of brightened up at the idea that we didn't necessarily have to just do it completely alone so it's funny the the realizations that we have about ourselves sort of in parallel to the things that we're working on with our clients to make sure that we're also yeah. always walking the walk or as much as we can um you know, and that we're not too far into a, you know, shoemaker's children have no shoes kind of a situation, which can happen as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, Alethea, that gives me hope. (laughs) Um, I know we are out of time, but I have just one more quick question for you, uh, which is what are you excited about right now? What am I excited about right now? Um, I am really excited about my team and I'm excited about the new opportunities that we have coming up. Um, yeah, like I said, this was a very um it was a very energizing conversation about the reports. And it I think was a for me a really good model of um as we get the time, because we've been really we've been really everyone in my team has been stretched so thin. 
and um and i we haven't had time to do some of the capacity building that you need to especially when you go from a team of one to a team of three i'm hoping a team Mm -hmm. of like three to a team of four is less of a jump but um i'm really excited about continuing to get to sort of geek out with my team about the work that we do and then to basically then bring those insights and being able to geek out with our clients as well. I mean, I just love the work that we do so much, even though it can be extremely heavy and painful. Um, so so that is that is certainly one thing that I am really excited about. Yeah, I'm excited about that too. Alethea, thank you so much for sharing the story of this year with us and how you have led yourself and your team and your clients through it. I really appreciate everything that you shared. Thank you. Thanks, Tara. Thanks for having the conversation with me. I appreciate it too. I've found my own way to focusing on what I can control over the last few years. It's why I started to set commitments instead of goals. It's why I've been focusing on process over outcome. These adjustments have helped me maintain a more even keel when unexpected things happen or when change comes out of nowhere. Alethea's examples are a great place to start for finding your own practice of focusing on what you can control and letting go of what you can't. Find out more about Alethea Fitzpatrick at cocreatinginclusion.com. Next week, we'll close out this series and the year with Missy Emler, the co-founder of Modern Learners, a visionary training company and community helping educators and administrators put the focus in schools back on learning. Missy and I talk about how moments of change present us with the question of who we want to become to meet the moment. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafeld. Our production assistants are Kristen Runvik and Lou Blazer. What Works is recorded in what is now known as Lidditz, Pennsylvania, the ancestral home of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is in what is now known as Kalispell, Montana, the home of the Katunaha Nation. 